Happy New Year. 2020, can you believe it? A new decade together. And what a great way to start and worship together this morning. We have a, a special morning ahead of us. Before we jump into the message today, I did want to give just a couple of pieces of New City family news. Uh, the first is our Bible reading plan. Many of you have started reading the Bible through with us this year. And if you haven't started the journey, it's not too late. We're only halfway through the book of Genesis right now, so you can jump in with us. What a great thing to do together as a church to read the Bible all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books. We've got a plan in place to do that together. You can find it on our app. If you haven't downloaded the New City app, it's there. You can also find it on the website. We've got some hard copies on our campuses. If you're watching from one of our campuses today, you can pick up the Bible reading plan. Just want to invite and encourage all of you to join the journey as we read through the Bible together as a church. And the second thing is next week we're starting a, a new series, a new sermon series entitled Sandpaper People. Sandpaper People. How to deal with people that rub you the wrong way. And we're going to be talking about, more importantly, what God says about people that rub you the wrong way, how to deal with that, how to handle them. And I'll give you a little preview. We all have sandpaper people in our lives, right? You have sandpaper people in your lives? We all have sandpaper people in our lives. And you are all a sandpaper person to someone else, believe it or not. I, mean, you, I can't, it's hard to believe, but we all are. And we're going we're gonna to discover what God has to say hey, about that, that in relation. I think I'm latent sandpaper person. No, this is the third time we've done this this weekend. I'm getting tired of you. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> no, 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 no. There's a pause. So you can see no. it, yeah. Um, not, not at all. So, so excited to, today to have Dr. Leighton Ford with us. Uh, this is our third service, our third visit together, and each and every one has been a, a delight and, and has been so much wisdom that's, that's been shared. Um, Leighton and, and Gene are here with us today and many of the, the Ford family members, and they have so much experience and wisdom to share of a life of ministry and service. And so let's begin this way. Would you just uh, join me in giving a warm New City welcome to Dr. Leighton Ford? Thanks, I appreciate that. I love doing it. Thank you. Thank you. We've entitled our, our sermon this morning, uh, What Matters Most? And it's really a conversation that we want to have with one another and really listening to Leighton and his wisdom and experience through the years about what matters most. And especially as we begin a new year, a new decade together about what the Lord may be saying. And so let's begin by going to God's word. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I want to encourage you to open to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, and if you're following along on the app or taking notes there, it's preloaded there for you. Isaiah chapter 43, and we're going to look at two verses today to frame our conversation, what matters most. Isaiah 43, verses 18 through 19, the word of God to you today, remember not the former things nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. This is a passage that's meant a lot to you through the years, Leighton, and I wonder if we could start our conversation uh, in listening to that word, but also having you respond to how God's used that passage to speak to you. Sure, and I'm glad to be here and have Great genies here someplace and Kevin and some of our family. And the girl with the red shoes was our granddaughter. Yeah. So yeah. you said I should have red shoes too. So. 
yeah. yeah, that scripture became important to us uh, back around the time I was around 50. Yeah. I've been involved in evangelism, as you know, uh, with uh, Billy for many years. And I'd sensed, Jeannie had too, maybe the Lord had something different for us. We didn't quite know what that might be. And I can remember um, we were praying and asking, looking at different opportunities. And I was leading a, a group in, uh, in Norway planning for an, an international conference. We had a lot of questions, didn't know which way, how to make that decision. And I remember stopping our conversation and saying, let's stop talking to each other and talk to the Lord for a while. Let's have a time of prayer. And so we did. We just stopped for about an hour. And we, we prayed, asking for the Lord's to give us direction. And in that time, a young man from England quoted those verses. And we've been reading a lot of different parts of Scripture, and they were all good, but that one came like an arrow to my heart. Yeah. Forget, forget the former things. I'm doing a new thing. Do you not see it? Mm. Well, I'd spent 30 years in evangelism with Billy and others around the world. We knew it was something new, not exactly what, but that was a, like an arrow to my heart, mm. which then led me on to start Leighton Ford Ministries based here in Charlotte. Uh, to help identify and develop and network the emerging leaders for the Lord's cause around the world. Mm -hmm. So that was a very key passage that came at that point. Mm -hmm. That was the Lord's voice yeah. for us to listen to. And speaking of listening, you've just written your memoirs and you entitled it A Life of Listening, How to Discern the Voice of the Lord and Discover Your Own. And so you've really framed your, your life around mm -hmm. the, the practice of, of listening. Maybe just speak about that for a moment, the importance sure. of listening. I think we all have many voices in our lives, parents, friends, voices from the media. They shape us, they misshape us. And out of all of those voices, if we can listen carefully enough to listen to discern the Lord's voice, the incomparable voice of Christ, then I think we find our own voice who God has called us to be. So that's what I was speaking about. And uh, I also think of, uh, I believe a follower of Jesus is essentially a listener. He said, I am the good shepherd. I call my sheep by name, Chris, Leighton, whatever. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. So essentially, to be a Jesus person is to be a listening. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I also, in, in this book, talk about those voices in my life, starting back with my, uh, with my, my mother, where I grew up in Canada. I can still, uh, she, I, I can't remember exactly her voice, but I can remember she lectured me for long times if I was yeah, bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But she also directed me in good ways. Yeah. Talk about that because one of the things that you write about and that you've mm -hmm. shared is uh, hearing the voice of God through many different voices and each of those voices being uh, broken people, broken voices, imperfect people and how God uses imperfect sandpaper people to, to speak to us. And you're okay. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You're not yeah. sandpaper. Uh, well, let me just talk about my, I'm, I'm adopted. I didn't know I was adopted until yeah. I, was, I was 12. I, don't, I should have because by that time, uh, I was six foot two and my adoptive mother was four foot 11. So <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't figured that out yet. But I, I remember taking a walk in a park up in Canada I took our daughter Debbie and two of our grandchildren there a couple of years ago. And as we walked one uh, autumn afternoon, I remember the, the leaves on the ground, yeah. and uh, my mother said, I want to tell you something you didn't know. She said I was adopted. I don't know why she waited that long. You were 12. I was 12 by that time, but it didn't 
for some reason it didn't bother me, but she said, we didn't have to have you, we chose to have you. She said there was an accident. I thought she meant a car accident, but I was the accident. Because she was, she was the 16-year-old um, daughter of a Presbyterian pastor, got pregnant for the university guy. And then I was given up for adoption to this family. But that, that made me sense, um, it was a surprise, but not a bad one, because I felt chosen and loved. Yeah. And that was very important to me. Yes, yeah. But she, uh, and it also gave me a sense, you know, of what the scripture means when it says that God adopts us into his mm -hmm. family, mm -hmm. that he chooses us, loves us, not for who we are, but because of his great love yeah. for us. So I'm sure probably here, people here have been adopted. I've met a couple out there recently. I had two beautiful little adopted children. I just mm -hmm. had a prayer with them outside. What a great thing it is to know that God adopts us into his family, yeah. mm -hmm. which is part of it right here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, you began to hear the voice of God th through your mother. You talk about that. Um, she taught me to, she had wanted to be a missionary, yeah. but she couldn't have been. She was not cut out to be a missionary, but she was, she was very uh, committed to her faith, but she was also a very troubled person in many ways. She had a lot of fears. And growing up, as, as particularly as I got into my later, into my early teens, I began to sense there was something wrong with her. And yet, in spite of that, she was the one who taught me to read the scripture. Yeah. I can still memorize, uh, repeat parts of John chapter 17 that she taught me to memorize that. She will hold up books before me about some of the great Christian leaders and say God wants people like that. Remember she took me to a meeting where there was a famous bishop from England and she said, listen to him. Hmm. That's a, it's a man of God. So she directed me in that even though in many ways she was a troubled person herself. Mm -hmm. And they had troubles in their relationship that spilled over. It, was, it wasn't easy. They ran a jewelry store. They were partners together in a, a very nice little jewelry store up there in Canada. She worked there. My dad worked there. But between them, there was a lot of tension. I can still remember times in my early teens, especially going to sleep at night, hearing them arguing in the middle of the night, and that was, that was tough. Mm -hmm. And yet, they loved me. Mm -hmm. And you met the Lord in their home, um, and you began to hear His voice. Yes, yes, I, in, in that house, and I have a painting of that in my little painting book, which is outside. And uh, there was a place on the second floor, I can still picture it, this was in this Maple City, Chatham, Ontario. And uh, there was at the top of the stairs, there was a little prayer bench, a little prayer stand, and she would have me kneel down there, and she'd read the scripture and then have me read it. She'd say a prayer and have me repeat it. Sometimes it went on, it seemed like a long time. <laughs> I wanted to be out playing hockey. But, uh, but that, that left an impression on me. Yeah. And she took me to places where I would hear about the Lord and meet other, meet other Christians. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that was, it's interesting. She was not a perfect person. She mm -hmm. was difficult through the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. And our the marriage was a very difficult one. But for me, looking back providentially, I, I think I was supposed to be in that family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she took you to a retreat. You write about this where you, were, you heard someone preach about listening to the Lord. Yes. Well... <clears throat> Right at the end, this, this goes back in history, we got, probably got some World War II veterans here. It was at the end of the Second World War, I was, uh, my mother left home. I, I remember a Christmas day, the Christmas, Christmas of 19, I guess, 40, 45, 46. And uh, we went out and had a Christmas dinner. We went to a movie. We went back to the store. Uh, and she began to, shout my father I was standing there listening to this it was a it was a hard day 
Shortly after that, uh, she left for months. Hmm. I didn't know where she was. She went to a part of Western Canada, lived for there for some months. He was very afraid of, of what my dad might do to her. It was a lonely time, and, uh, and I had friends, and, and uh, my dad was there. But that summer, I went to a Bible conference, and by the way, I discovered this morning, a uh, guy was here in the early service, has been to that same, same place, wow. uh, Ken Schultz. Hmm. And uh, there was a speaker who talked about the morning quiet time. I thought, who wants to be quiet in the morning if you're a teenager? But he talked about how he prayed. And he said, I'm sort of a restless guy. So he said, I don't kneel down. I don't stand up. I thought, what's he do? He said, I walk up and down and pray. I thought, hey, get your exercise and pray at the same time. Then he said, uh, I actually pray out loud because otherwise in my busy mind I get distracted so he said, I'll actually say my prayer. And then he said, I'll take my Bible and I'll open up to a, maybe a psalm and I'll read a verse and I'll turn that into a prayer. For some reason, plus the fact that I was, there was a real cute girl there, and, uh, <clears throat> and there were some young people. I liked the way they sang about the Lord. And I remember getting that big old Bible, going out to those woods early one morning and starting to walk up and down, hoping no one was watching, and reading a psalm and turning it into a prayer. I can't remember what psalm it was, but it was something yeah. about God hearing when we called to him. Mm. And I, here I was, a 14-year-old in a difficult situation, realizing how much God cared for me. I didn't hear his voice, but it was through the scripture yeah. that I knew he was saying, I love you and I care for you. That was a very significant summer mm -hmm. when I was 14. So before we go further, why is it so difficult, in your opinion, for us to, to listen and, and to pray? All the noise. All the noise outside, everywhere, all the mm -hmm. time. When, are, when do we ever have? When do we ever have quiet? Mm -hmm. All the noise out there, all the noise inside of our thoughts, our desires, our dreams, our hurts. With all of that, all the static in our lives, and maybe and that. When do we ever stop and say, "Be still and know that I am God." recognize that. It's very important, but sometimes it's scary. What may God say? What may God want me to do? Or does he really care? Yeah. So, but I think becoming a follower of Jesus means to learn to listen to others, as I did to my mother and that speaker, to friends, to my own heart, but above all, through the scripture, to the Lord. Hmm. And that's why I say we are meant to be listeners. We do a lot of talking. Christians do a lot of talking. Not everybody. Hmm. Preachers do. <laughs> you and me. Yes. But, you, you know, I, I sometimes think you say, boy, that, that leader, there's a wonderful speaker. How many people do you say, boy, that person was a good listener? Yeah. We long for someone who will really listen to us. Yes, yeah. So and to, to his word. And that's why we come here, to listen to his word. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you're 14 years old, and you get involved with an organization called Youth for Christ. Maybe tell us about Youth for Christ and, and how you got involved. At the end of uh, World War II, there were some, uh, some pastors around Chicago and other places who said, we need to reach this generation of kids. Many of them were veterans in the war. So they started having Saturday night rallies uh, in the big cities and in the small towns and, having, uh, and doing this to reach young people for Christ. That was Youth for Christ. Billy Graham was their first evangelist. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, that summer, after I had that time of walking up and down in the woods and praying, a guy came to our hometown, uh, representing Youth for Christ, saying, do you want to have that here? 
a little group of us, maybe a dozen of us, met together. We said, yeah, let's do it. Sounds like a good idea. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, you've got to appoint leaders. So my friend nominated me for the president. And uh, this guy appointed me. He thought I was 17 because I was tall. When he learned I was 14, hmm. he must have had a heart attack. I put this 14-year-old kid in charge of this. Uh, but he became a, a, a friend to me, a mentor to me, gave me ideas, sent speakers our way, taught me a couple of times to say you shouldn't have done it this way. So that was a real start for me. And the timing of that coming at this point in my life was pretty significant. Mm -hmm. And it led you to several conferences. And you talk about how the, the, the first time you heard Billy Graham preach, and I love the way you describe his preaching, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you said it was like a, uh, a train whistle rolling through the prairie. That's right. Can't you just hear a voice like that? Billy's voice. Don't, don't you miss his voice now? You know, don't we miss his voice now? But that was so clear and so compelling. And boy, we'd just sit there and listen, and all of us young would-be preachers would say, boy, we want to be able to preach like that. You say if you close your eyes even now, you can hear him preaching in some stadium. Prepare to meet thy God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he became a very significant person in your life. He came to our Youth for Christ rally. It was, I remember it was a January night, actually it's 60 years ago this month. Wow. He came to Chatham, Ontario, mm -hmm. and he spoke away. The place was packed, our high school and uh, a lot of my friends were there, and we knew all of them were going to listen. And because of his compelling message, we know that they were going to come and come forward and give their lives to the Lord. And uh, he preached powerfully. No response. One of the few times I've ever heard there was a young girl made a rededication. Otherwise, no one moved. They were slow, conservative Canadians. And, it, and I was so disappointed because we thought all of our friends would respond. They didn't. But for me, the... The importance of that night was, at the, at the end of it, I'm sure Billy could see I was disappointed in my yeah. face. I, I walked over and stood there by the side of the platform. And I remember he came over, and he put an arm around me. And he said, Leighton, I believe that God has given you this desire to see people know the Lord. Well, you can see it up there, mm. right in the screen. But this was after that. The guy on the right with the glasses is the one who nominated me for the president. <laughs> of, youth for, of our local Youth for Christ. But anyway, Billy came over and put an arm around me and he said, I believe if you stay humble, God will use you and I'm going to pray for you. Yeah. And that arm around the shoulder, that touch that was so significant to me meant so much to me at that point. I've never forgotten it. I'm, a few years ago before Billy died, we were up there talking to him, Jeannie and I, and I said, thank you for that arm around the shoulder. I'm mm -hmm. so grateful. He said, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He was grateful for that. But that was important to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just that one little touch. And now God's doing some new things. Our granddaughter who was up here singing, the blonde in the red shoes, yeah. she just came from the Passion Conference in Atlanta, 65,000 young people there, came back full of the desire to make Christ known. There may be a new movement of the Lord now. Amen. And maybe who is there younger than you that Billy, you can do for them, someone in this church, some of the young up-and-coming leaders, Touch them, pray for them, encourage them. They're, they're, the God, they're the future of God's kingdom. Yeah. And that's become part of your life's work. Yes, yeah. it has been. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. well across the years. So Billy introduced you to an important place, and, yes. and more importantly, a very special person. Talk about that. Billy wrote after that night, he told me about Wheaton College, which I hadn't thought of going there. He suggested that. 
and he wrote me a letter of recommendation to Wheaton, and I got turned down. <laughs> so, I wanted a few people believe I wrote a letter before I got turned down, and I finally got in. I got in on my own. But he also came back to Charlotte and uh, told his kid sister about this guy that he met in Canada. So I'd heard about her. She'd heard about me. But yeah. she, she ended up at Wheaton a year after I went there. And uh, so that's where we met. Mm -hmm. At a hockey game, a friend of mine that I played hockey with said, hey, I've been dating this girl from Charlotte. I'm not getting any place with her. You need to know her. <laughs> so uh, big favor. So we went to see the Chicago Blackhawks play the Boston Bruins at the Chicago Stadium. And uh, I paid more attention to Jeannie than I did to the hockey game that night. Mm -hmm. And uh, one little funny thing, there was an old woman who was a big fan up above us. She cheered so loud that her teeth fell out. <laughs> false teeth right down there. So that's bizarre, isn't it? Why would I remember that? <laughs> but we fell, we fell very much in love. And then uh, I knew that God had called me to the ministry and especially to evangelism to make uh, Christ known. So I uh, thought if I'm going to marry a southern girl, I'd have learned something about the South. So I went to seminary in Atlanta. So that, anyway, that's where our relationship started. Mm -hmm. And talk to us about uh, engagement. We've been going together for about two years. And uh, I was in seminary and decided that Christmas that year, I was going to propose to her. So I came down here to Charlotte. And on New Year's Eve uh, of that year, Right before midnight, probably about a quarter to 12, I got down. How many of you have been out at the Billy Graham Library? Not many of you here. You know the house there? Okay, that sofa there is right where I knelt down and had this long story I'd made up about searching for the true light all over the world and finding it in my true love's eyes. It was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not so wonderful. But anyway, I, I, I finally, uh, about one or two minutes to midnight, I said to Jeannie, will you marry me? Mm. And she said, I'd love to. Mm. Mm. I didn't know till afterwards that she had been praying that if we were to get married, that I would ask her before the end of the year. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. She later said she might have given me some two minutes extra grace. Yeah. <laughs> and there were, then, then we were married at the old Calvary Church on a mm. December night, a year or so later. Okay. And from there, you finished seminary. And talk to us about um, going to New York City and the work you did there. Yeah, I had, you know, out of my own experience at 14, wanted to make Christ known. Uh, and, and I'd done some, some speaking, and I, I realized God had called me to preach the gospel. And Billy asked me to come and join his team after I finished seminary. I was actually ordained in the Presbyterian Church here in this area as an evangelist. Did you know there are Presbyterian evangelists? That's, is that an oxymoron? Yeah. <laughs> Not, not so. But he said, come and help me in our crusades, which I did. And then he, he asked my genie and me to go to New York City and uh, uh, over the next year to prepare for his crusade in Madison Square Garden, that great famous arena in the heart of, of New York City. So we moved up there. I worked with the churches all through the area, helping them to know how they could pray, bring their friends, mm -hmm. be Andrews, bringing their brothers to Jesus. Yeah. And uh, that was a very important time. And I look back on that, and, and that was the biggest crusade he'd ever had. It lasted 16 and a half weeks. Billy Graham preached in Madison Square Garden six nights a week for 16 weeks, and it was packed every night except one. Amazing. Never happened before or since. It was an amazing time. 
But I look back on that and think, yeah, there I was, just out of seminary, 23, 24 years old, and Billy gave me that responsibility to go and organize the churches. And I, I look back and I think, if that had been me, would I have put a kid in charge of that? But now he'd come to know me. I'd married his sister, so he couldn't fire me. And, uh, and he knew I had some experience, but he trusted me to do that. Mm. And that's one of the things I have wanted to do across these years, to see other young men and women that God is calling, and to give them the opportunities. That, that he was a mentor, opening doors for me yeah. in that way. Believed in you. As well as being able to watch him and mm. seeing a man who is a great man, a famous man, be yet a humble man before the Lord. Mm. And one of the significant things that happened at the New York Crusade was you got to meet Dr. Martin Luther King. We did, yeah, we did. Was, and of course, New York was the most diverse crusade in a great city, people from all backgrounds and so forth. But uh, Dr. King had just begun his, uh, his civil rights, ad he was a pastor in Atlanta, he had begun his, his movement to seek justice for his race. And uh, Billy said, we should have him come. And, and be here and have a prayer. So I had the privilege of sending a, a telegram to Dr. King and saying, would you come uh, whatever night you can? And he came there, we met him ahead of time, and he prayed a prayer that night, a very, very good heartfelt prayer. Mm -hmm. He was um, quite distinguished, very calm, I felt, medium height, uh, warm, not effusive, but certainly uh, prayed a very, very good prayer that night. And he and Billy became... Uh, I wouldn't say close friends, but they became friends across the years. Mm -hmm. And uh, he told Billy, he said, call me Mike. He said, all my friends call me Mike. So okay. Billy would call him Mike. Okay. Talk a little bit about that period of time, because uh, all throughout your ministry, um, part of what you talk about is not only a heart for seeing people come to Christ, but also for justice, and that Christians need to have a heart for both. And certainly throughout your ministry and lifetime, lots of racial tension, political upheaval, war. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, going back to those, those days in the 50s when I joined his team, I did. Billy said, why don't you go back to Canada and uh, put a team together and evangelize across the country, which I did for many years. But those 50s, like in New York, his crusades in London and Australia. By the way, the fires in Australia right now I know many people there pray for them. It's huge, huge fires, people being evacuated, and pray for the Christians and churches in Australia. But during the 50s, those crusades, it was almost like a breath of revival. Mm. They were organized, but beyond that, post-World War II, people searching for a new time. The veterans were back. They were going to school. They were building new houses. New churches were being planted all over. And the crusades were part of that movement of God. And I pray we'll say the same thing again today. Like uh, Annabelle has just found with the passion people. Uh, then came the 60s, and that was the time of the civil rights, the time of, of the Vietnam War, the time of the war on poverty, a lot of upheaval. And uh, it was a, it was a t uh, kind of revolutionary time. Yeah. And God spoke to me through some of those same scriptures, like uh, Jesus' first sermon uh, that you quoted in the last service. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to the sight of the blind, freedom for the prisoners. And as in the light of all that upheaval and the search for justice, I went back again to the Scripture, Billy did too, and said, we have a personal gospel for personal salvation, but also it's a message about the kingdom of God. Hmm. The kingdom of God, is, as Jesus said, I've come to announce that. 
And uh, so we began in our crusades to put that emphasis on justice and, uh, and reconciliation centered in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I have some vivid memories of that. I remember a church in Alabama where Bill was having a crusade. I preached on a Sunday morning. When I was through, they said there was a young black soldier going to Vietnam who came and wanted to go to church and find Jesus. He was turned away at the door because they said he was a demonstrator. He had come to worship. He didn't come to make a fuss. And I, I found, learned his name, wrote a letter to him. I had a friend deliver that letter. And, uh, who went, I have a friend who went on a mission to Vietnam and gave it to him. Said that you should have been allowed to come in. That wasn't the spirit of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But that spoke to my heart. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also remember a crusade in Tennessee. This, this is very vivid in my memory. Mm. At the, uh, the Nalon Stadium up there was at the university. Billy was preaching, huge crowd. A lot of students there were demonstrating for justice and peace. And they made a lot of noise. And mm -hmm. Billy finally got them quiet enough to preach. But I noticed at the end, when he gave the altar call, there was a young guy who came and stood there in the crowd, a hippie-looking guy with long hair, and holding both hands up. And it, with one hand, he was, had one finger up, and the other had two fingers up. Mm. And I, I kept looking at him, well, what is that about? And then, so anyway, he stood there a long time with his hands up and rest them on his head. And there was an, I, I looked over, there was an elderly black preacher from Knoxville, also was watching him. And this black preacher got off the platform and went down, stood behind that young man mm. and held his arms up. Like in the Old Testament where the, they held Moses' arms up. It was so vivid. The young man, the older man, the hippie, the pastor, the white young man, the black man, coming together at the cross. And I went down and found that young guy afterwards and said, learned his name. I said, I watched you. What, what, were, you, what were you doing with those two hands up? He said, well, I was here last night. I was part of the crowd up there in the demonstrators. But he said, I realized last night I want peace in our world, but it's only through Christ it's going to happen. He said, that's what I was saying. I want peace, but Christ is the way. Mm -hmm. He later became a pastor. Wow. But uh, to see how that happened at the foot of the cross was, mm -hmm. was very powerful. Mm -hmm. And we need that today. We need it yeah. in all the divisions we have in our yeah. country right now, mm -hmm. uh, uh, political and ethnic and otherwise. Mm -hmm. At the foot of the cross is where God wants us as the followers of Jesus mm -hmm. to, to call people together humbly to the cross. Mm -hmm. And I would say especially, I look back to those young people then, the younger people, and some of you are here today, mm. long for, for belonging. They're, they're lonely. Loneliness is prevailing on our college campuses. Well, the suicide rate is up for young people. They want a sense of belonging. And sometimes they have to belong before they believe. Have that kind of community. And they long for justice. They want to see justice very much so. But they want to see that in Christ. So uh, we have a new opportunity, a freshman in the church today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Leighton, you went on to become the vice president of the Billy Graham Association and, of course, organized crusades all over the world and preached 40-plus uh, countries to millions of, of people. And the Lord began to do something new in your heart from there. Speak about a new calling that you had to, to start Leighton Ford Ministries, and you've spoken about it before, but really a, a focus on emerging leaders and mentoring. Mm -hmm. As I, as I had the privilege of working around the, the world, I saw there was a whole new generation coming. People Billy Graham's age were coming toward the end of their ministry. There was a whole group of men and women in their 30s with fresh visions to serve the Lord. And uh, I thought, 
maybe part of what we need to do now is really to encourage them. Yeah. I remember that arm around the shoulder from Billy. And then um, we had a loss in our family. And we have three wonderful children. We have Debbie who was here last night. And uh, her family lived here in Charlotte. She's married to an OBGYN doctor, some of you will know. He travels with me. I call him my personal gynecologist. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, well, we have Debbie, and then we have Kevin, who's, Kevin's out here someplace this morning, I think, and he and I have just joined our ministries together. Yeah. And then Sandy was our middle child. Uh, Sandy was very intense, loved the Lord. He was an athlete. He was a runner, mile cross-country runner. Yeah. And uh, one day while he was working out at AG, uh, Jeannie went to pick him up, and his heart was, reading, was beating 360 beats a minute. And uh, this is a life-threatening rate. She took him to doctors. They took him down to the hospital. They got his heart converted back to normal. Uh, when he was 14, they had surgery to correct that uh, electrical problem in his heart. He went on to, uh, to serve the Lord. He was a, at uh, Myers Park. He ran for the student body president and gave a speech about Jesus. Went up to Chapel Hill, was leading uh, there in uh, leading and serving. Not, I don't mean that he was self-important, but loved the Lord. And uh, we got a call one Wednesday night saying he was back in the hospital, that his, that old heart problem came back again. And so we drove up, this is right before Thanksgiving, uh, 1981. Hmm. And I remember Sandy sitting there in a little cubicle at the hospital because they, it was too, because of the threat of another occurrence, they couldn't let him leave. And he was so discouraged. Uh, he said, Dad, why would this happen now? He said, I'm in love just been elected to the Scholastic Honor Society, head of InterVarsity, going to lead his Uncle Billy's crusade up there. Why would this happen now? It's a tough time for him and, and for us. And uh, over the next week, they did the test, and we prayed for him, and then he had surgery again right after Thanksgiving and didn't survive. They said at the end of the long surgery, he said, we fixed the problem, but we couldn't get his heart to start again. And it was out of that lost. And Sandy had written a letter saying, Dad and Mom, we don't know why this is happening, but we trust God that he's going to use it, whether I'm healed or not, for his purpose. Hmm. So uh, that loss, and, and some of you are, will remember that, was hmm. deep, deep in our hearts. I remember going out to look for a place to bury him out at Forest Lawn East. Hmm. You don't look for a place to bury your child, do you? It's hmm. the wrong order of things. Some of you have had that experience. And uh, we miss him to this day. Mm -hmm. He has a place in my heart that, along with Debbie and Kevin, that will always be there. Mm -hmm. But partly out of that and, and those other things, Jeannie and I felt maybe what God wants us to do is to identify those future leaders that God is calling and help them to run their race for Christ. Mm -hmm. We started a, a scholarship program, and uh, now our ministry that I've done for years around the world, we have 30 mentoring groups around the world of young leaders that are now serving the Christ. And uh, mm -hmm. some of the part of that is, comes out of a loss. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jesus said, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it's alone. But if it falls into the ground and dies, then it multiplies. So uh, mm -hmm. that's been our experience. Thank you for being willing to share that. We miss him. Thankful for him and thank you for, thank you for caring. Mm -hmm. And agree, those of you, I'm sure there are people out here who have gone through that same experience. And it's yeah. just, uh, people would say, try to say nice things to us. It's all for the best and so forth. And 
but we just missed it. A huge, huge hole. But I got one letter from, I'd been in Australia preaching, and uh, one of the leaders there sent me a quote from the book of Exodus about the deep, the deep darkness where God is. And God is not just presence in the happy light times, but in some of those darkest times, even when we don't hear or quite get it, to know he's there with us. He was there strengthening us more than we knew. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are many people in the room and watching that have a broken heart, that have lost someone or something. Um, could you just share another word to them? <clears throat> Wow, I've, it's so personal. Each loss is different. Yeah. I mean, Sandy had a clean grief in a sense. Each loss is so different. Uh, the only word is I hurt for you. It hurts. No denying it. We can say all the We know we have hope. We know we're going to be with Sandy again. I had an imaginary conversation with him after he died. He said, Dad, it's the wall between us. is so thin. You'd, you'd laugh if you could see it. We have that hope, but it just hurts. And I know that. I'm sorry. And we need people who will just let us. You know, tears are important. Sometimes mm -hmm. we're afraid of tears. Tears are, God gave us tears. Yeah. You know, Billy, Billy, Billy found it very hard to, to cry. It was, tears didn't come easily to him. But at Sandy's service, when he spoke, he's choked up for one of the few times I can remember. So uh, when you go through grief, it can be very lonely and very tiring. And it seems like it'll never end. But it will. Two, two more experiences, if I may, before we close today. The, the first was meeting Mother Teresa. Maybe share about that encounter and, and what you learned from her. Well, like many of you, and like my wife, Jeannie, who just adored Mother Teresa from what she'd learned about her, I'd always admired this little lady in India who started this community helping the dying people. And so when we were in, the, in India, India, we thought, we'd like to go meet her. So mm -hmm. they said, just show up. So we went to this little building, and uh, there, little sign, there wasn't a big neon sign, Mother Teresa's here, just <laughs> nothing like that. Just a little door with a sign saying, Sisters of Mercy. And we went in, and uh, there's a picture of her with that, one of my mentors, one of my great mentors, Bishop Jack Dane, was with me. And uh, she was a little woman. She was like my mother, less than five feet tall, mm -hmm. and she had on these thick glasses. She was barefoot. She had a bunion on one foot. I remember that. And, uh, and she said, I can't stay long because they're sending me to talk to some rich people about helping poor people. Can you imagine them asking me? I said, yes. <laughs> uh, but I remember saying, Mother, how do you keep going with all of these dying people? How do you keep this up? I mean, there are hundreds of them. And she said, we do our work. I remember her little Albanian accent. We do our work for Jesus with Jesus and to Jesus. And that's what keeps it simple. Wow. And I've always remembered that. And sometimes, Chris, in the middle of a day, middle of the morning, whatever I'm doing, I just stop and say, why am I doing this? Is it for Jesus? Is it with Jesus? Is it to Jesus? Hmm. And that keeps it simple. Mm -hmm. And someone asked Mother Teresa, someone who had a big problem situation, came to her and said, <coughs> um, Mother Teresa, will you pray for me? She said, what do you want me to pray? They said, pray we'll have clarity. Mm. She said, no, I won't. <laughs> you won't? No. I pray you'll have trust. Wow. Think about that. I won't pray you'll have clarity. 
I pray you'll have trust. Wow. And oftentimes we don't have clarity. Do you know, where, do you know what's going to happen next week? Mm, no. Do you know what's going to happen with this church over this year? No. Do we know what's going to happen with our world right now in the Middle East and in a political year and all of these things going on? We don't know. And I think that word's very important. We may not have clarity. We can have trust. But the great shepherd who calls us by name and says, I give to my sheep eternal life. No one can pluck them out of my hand. We have trust in him. And at my age, I'm, I'm on the Canadian plan, by the way. At 65, you go backwards, so I'm 48 now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Gene and I said, what's ahead? We don't know. But can we say, Lord, give us trust? Mm. And I would pray that for a new city. As you, you have a new beginning here. Now, that verse of Scripture, yeah. Isaiah 43, we've watched your two churches merge. Remember not the former things the Lord is saying? I'm going to do a new thing. What's God, wow. God going to do here? Wow. We'll pray for you as you do that with trust. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, one, one final thought today. You took up painting later in your life, and one of the pictures that you painted was entitled Billy's Gate, and I wondered if we could close by showing the picture and just having you share a little bit about, about sure. the, the painting. I believe Jesus was an artist. He was, Van Gogh said he was a greater artist than the artist. He painted people. I'd never thought of drawing or painting until I was in my 60s. Huh. And all the, I saw a book on it, started painting. It's been fun. And by the way, bless the artists. You've got a, we have artists here like Ann Nielsen was here and Eva Crawford's been here. And uh, artists are called by God. But anyway, I've, uh, we, Jeannie and I were up visiting Billy. I'm looking at, at the screen back here. You can see it up there. We got up to see Billy in his house in the mountains several years before he died. And uh, we were in this little room. We were talking. I said, when you die, do you want your sister to say something? He said he'd be very honored. Hmm. And I said, what do you want her to say? He was, at that, by that time, he was pretty slow. What would you like her to say? Of course, when she did speak, she was funny. Some of you remember that. Hmm. But he said, I'd like her to say he did what he thought he should. And I said, what was that? Preach the gospel. So we were sitting back in his little room. Jeannie stayed with him. I walked outside, and there was that uh, old gate. It's not there anymore, old wooden gate and that uh, stone wall. Hmm. And I was, I was looking at it. I thought, that's so significant. Hmm. Jesus said, I am the gate yeah. for the sheep. I call my sheep to go through the gate to me, hmm. and they follow me. And I thought, that gate is Jesus. The door is open, the way to the far country. And that Billy preached it. Billy's gone through that gate now. And isn't this what our task is, to say there's a gate and there's a door and it's wide open and Jesus is the gate. Amen. Because he said, when you come to me, you have fullness of life, life in all its fullness. Amen. And I want, to the end of my life, to help people go through that gate Amen. and to follow him. Amen. 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 Thank you for sharing today. Sure. Would you pray for us and everyone listening today, Leighton? I will. Thank you. Be still and know that I am God. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Lord, I've, I've heard, as we all have, many voices and they call us in many directions. Mm. I pray that for me, for Chris, for all of us here, we may listen through your word with your people deep in our hearts 
to a still small voice that says, this is the way, walk in it. Maybe just one day, one hour at a time with trust. Mm -hmm. Speak, Lord, Mm -hmm. we pray. In your strong name, amen. 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 Thank you.